0: This is Our American Stories, and did you know that all of China runs on just a single time zone? Well, here in America, we have four, Pacific, Mountain, Central, and Eastern, but we used to have thousands. Here's Greg Hengler with a story of how time zones came to America.
1: What time is it? It's a seemingly easy question, but depending on what time zone you live in, your time will be different. The development and spread of the railroads across the United States in the 1800s brought a wave of changes to American life. The railroad boom created jobs, new towns, faster transportation, increased trade, and transformed the American landscape forever with the first transcontinental railroad completed in 1869. It's a heroic chapter in American history, but the most interesting transformation is least known. The establishment of standard time. After all, up until noon on November 18, 1883, timekeeping was medieval. Each town in the United States had its own time, depending on when the noonday sun was directly overhead. Here's American popular science author Stephen Johnson.
2: So you know what it's like taking a train ride today. You can kick back, read a book, listen to some music. But imagine what it would have been like in 1870 trying to take a train. Let's say we're traveling from New Haven to New York. And so I get on the train at, at 12 o'clock New Haven time. And it takes us two hours to get to New York. So we should be arriving in New York at two o'clock. But in fact, in New York time, that's technically... 155. but the train we're on is actually running on, on Boston time, so that means we're actually pulling into the station in New York on Boston time at 2.17, but then we're like making a connection to a train to Baltimore that's running on Baltimore time, so that train is actually leaving the station at 2.07, which seems to be in the past. I mean, you have to be a math major to figure out what time it is.
1: So how did the nation settle on uniform time zones? Some may think that the government brought order out of this chaos, but this was not the case. It was the railroads that spearheaded the move to a time zone system because the varying times in different towns created hazards for traveling trains. A miscalculation of one minute could mean a collision. As the Foundation for Economic Education president Lawrence Reed noted, east-west travel was rough. Predicting the time a train would arrive at any particular stop was no small feat in the days before standard time. Fearing government intervention, railroad managers commissioned transportation publisher William Frederick Allen to devise a simple plan. He proposed four time zones divided vertically, 15 degrees apart by lines called meridians. Those meridians came close to hitting the cities of Philadelphia, Memphis, Denver, and Fresno. In October of 1883, a general time convention held in Chicago set up by various railroads approved of noon, November 18, 1883, as the date when railroad time would replace local time. The railroads didn't bother with legislation or with Congress. Here's historian Michael O'Malley, author of Keeping Watch, A History of American Time.
3: They just say, we're doing it, and you can get on board. They call it the day of two noons. That's the nickname. The railroad announced it's a Sunday. That at noon on this day, November 18th, they're just going to stop all operations. Wherever the train is, it's just going to stop. And it's going to wait however long it takes to catch up with what the new standard time will be. And in cities... Any city that agrees to go along with it, and most of them do, they stop the clocks or they suddenly move them ahead. And in in major cities in America, people get wind of this and they gather around the clocks wondering sort of anxiously what's going to happen. You know, it's a puzzling thing. Uh, There's, you know, jokes that if you slip on a banana peel at the right moment, you'll take 15 minutes to fall. And then it happens, you know, and the people look at each other and they shrug and nothing much happens.
1: Since these new time zones were a private undertaking, they had no force of law. Only railroad employees had to obey the new times. But in fact, people began to set their watches by a railroad time and the change was widely accepted. Some government officials were apparently annoyed that such a change could take place without their playing any serious role. According to H. Stewart Holbrook in The Story of American Railroads, the traveling public and shipper Too quickly fell in with the new time belt plan and naturally found it good. But Uncle Sam wasn't ready to admit the change was beneficial. A few days before November 18th, the Attorney General of the United States issued an order that no government department had a right to adopt railroad time until authorized by Congress. So when did Congress authorize the change? 35 years later, on March 19th, 1918, during World War I. At this point, Congress passed the Standard Time Act and made official what everyone else had put into practice. Time zones were now legally part of American life. Here again is Michael O'Malley. What Standard Time did is it
3: changed the nature of community. Before Standard Time, the time of day was what the local sun was doing, and it was noon in your valley. You know, on the other side of the mountain, it was not quite noon yet. But standard time, if everybody adopted it, put people in new forms of relationship to each other. So after 1883, from Portland, Maine to Atlanta, everybody's on Eastern time. Eight o'clock in the morning means eight o'clock in the morning, regardless of what the sun is doing. If you think of North-South as being one of the great divides of American life, this obliterates North-South, and it makes North and South the same all along the Eastern seaboard. Whereas before, North and South were very different. It makes East and West a more meaningful difference. And it unites a whole Western region from Texas up to Minnesota in a single time. So it does rearrange the kind of priorities for community.
1: Today, let's celebrate time zones by remembering the constitutional role of government to enforce laws and provide national defense. Beyond that, a free people can create solutions to a multitude of problems. They did so in 1883, when they created Time Zones. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is our American Stories. It's time to move on. It's time to get going. What
0: This is Our American Stories, and we recently came across an article in Popular Mechanics that caught our attention. It's called Burning Out, What Really Happens Inside a Crematorium, and it was by Karen Chelsler, a freelance writer in New Jersey who writes about science, politics, and parenting. She graciously agreed to record a portion of this piece for us, and as dark as the subject may seem, it's a fascinating look into a part of life that is seldom seen.
4: Rose Hill Cemetery in Linden, New Jersey, is awash in small-town trappings: tree-lined roads, rolling lawns, and street signs at every corner. On this Wednesday midsummer morning, the familiar routine of loss plays out across the acres. A yellow taxi waits at the end of a row of graves for someone paying their respects. Men and women clad in church clothes line up their cars along the curb and make their way to a grave site. A backhoe digs out some earth, another spot for another resident. This is the textbook way we treat our dead. Someone passes, they're buried, a headstone marks their place out among the rows in the burrow of the departed. But today I'm bound for a different part of the cemetery, one fewer people see though that fact is rapidly changing. This place is called the Columbarium, and at first the very existence of this vast chamber full of urns can come as a surprise. In the movie version of Life and Death, a cremated person's remains sit up on the shelf at home, or friends scatter their ashes in the wind over a sacred locale. In the real world, many cremated people stay in the cemetery, just like their buried counterparts. Rose-colored carpeting covers the floors here. The whir of a vacuum cleaner punctures the silence. Cubby holes or niches line the walls and the varying sizes and styles of urns within them marks the passing of the eras. Older urns are more ornate. One is topped by an eternal flame while another is shaped like a Bible One inscribed, Henrietta Lieber, 1866 to 1933, is shaped like an acorn. Next to it leans a photo of Henrietta who's standing behind a chair in a sleeveless white dress and long pearls, her hair fashioned in a bob like a flapper. More contemporary urns are boxier and cleaner in style. They're also larger and not for vanity's sake. The cremation process recovers a lot more of the human body than it used to. Some families have packed their niche with flowers, family photos, or pictures of Jesus. Others skipped the niche entirely and entombed the cremated remains behind a marble plaque. It is a curious thing, as if the body was broken down into its smallest organic parts, then surrounded with stone to protect them we are seeing a fundamental shift in how we approach death and what comes after. Compared to just a few decades ago vastly more Americans are foregoing the old-fashioned burial and turning to the alternative of cremation. This is what brought me here to Rose Hill and now my tour with Jim Kozlowski, president of the Rose Hill and Rosedale Cemetery is about to go deeper into his world to see how cemeteries are dealing with America's after-death revolution. As I follow him deeper into the columbarium we pass through the Rose Room. Urns here are not hidden in niches behind glass but instead are on display in the open air. I prefer it this way. The glass cases remind me of the razors at the drugstore, the ones you can only access by notifying a salesperson with a key. Deeper still, at the very rear of the room, lies a set of stained glass doors. Kozlovsky slides them open to reveal a hidden set of spy movie doors, these made of metal. They are solid for a reason. Behind them lies the crematorium itself. The doors open and we stroll onto what looks like the floor of a factory, but one dedicated to a certain kind of deconstruction. Back in 1980, less than 5% of Americans were cremated when they died. That figure now stands at about 50%, according to the National Cremation Association of North America. Changing cultural and religious standards are at play here, for sure. But if you want to see one event that accelerated the change, look no further than the Great Recession. We saw a big uptick in cremation when there was an economic downturn in 2008 when people were losing their jobs. Cremation is a less expensive alternative, Kozlowski says. Less expensive alternative may be putting it lightly. Rose Hill charges just $180 to cremate a body, although the urn, flowers, and service are extra. A grave by contrast can cost $2,500 plus an additional $1,500 to open the ground with a backhoe. Rose Hill, located about a half hour from Manhattan, now cremates about 25 bodies per day and has been expanding its facility to meet the growing demand. It already had three cremation machines but bought an additional unit in 2013. Another in 2016, and expects to have a sixth up and running by the end of the year. Of course, burning the dead isn't a new concept. It was around long, long before the recession forced Americans to start pinching their pennies. Cremation began in the Stone Age, and it was common, though not universal, in ancient Greece and Rome. In certain religions, such as Hinduism and Jainism, cremation was not only permitted, but preferred. The rise of Christianity put the brakes on the practice in the West. As early as 330 AD, around the time that Emperor Constantine adopted Christianity as the Roman Empire's official religion, Rome outlawed cremation as a pagan practice. The theological reason for the ban was related to the resurrection. It was good to keep the body whole or in one place. Through the Reformation, the Catholic Church frowned on or prohibited cremation, though it was used for punishment and hygiene reasons. Jewish law also banned the practice. By the 5th century, cremation had all but disappeared from Europe. The practice saw a resurgence in Europe in the 1870s, mostly because of public health concerns about curbing the spread of disease. The first modern crematory was built in the U.S. in 1876. A second came eight years later. By 1900 there were 20. The practice got another boost in 1963 when the Catholic Church reversed its opinion on cremation during the Vatican II reforms and said cremation was permitted though ash scattering was not. Today there are more than 2,100 crematories around the United States and the cremation resurgence isn't just about cost. There are other factors, including fewer religious prohibitions on the practice and changing consumer preferences, such as the desire for simpler, less ritualized funerals. Our increasingly mobile way of life plays a part, too, says Robert Biggins of Magoon Biggins Funeral Home in Rockland, Massachusetts. People aren't growing up in Mayberry RFD and staying their whole lives. Were much more mobile. Generation X and millennials, they stay in a job on average five to seven years. Americans don't want to be sedentary and deaf either. Simply put, cremation has become socially acceptable. Acceptance varies by state and ethnicity, according to a report by the National Funeral Directors Association. But in places like California, Oregon, and South Florida, 60 to 80 percent of the dead are now cremated, while the number is much lower in the Bible Belt and among certain cultures including Catholics and African Americans. And there's one more force pushing cremation as an alternative. Cemeteries are running out of space, Kozlovsky says. He estimates Rose Hill has only 15 years before it's out of room. It's no wonder then that a lot of cemeteries have applied to build crematoriums though there's often opposition, particularly if they're in a residential area. There's a stigma, Kozlovsky says. There's still a segment of society that sees cremations as gruesome or ghoulish, and they don't want it in their backyard. Kozlovsky and I pass through the double doors. As we stand on the floor of the crematorium, a bell rings out. What's that for, I ask. That indicates that there's a hearse probably backing up to the door, he says. So when the guys are in here operating, if they're doing something and they hear the bell, they know someone is coming.
0: And when we come back, we step into the inner sanctum of the crematorium itself, where the gruesome but necessary process of cremation is carried out. How it works, what happens, and more, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Karen Chesler and her piece of Popular Mechanics titled, Burning Out, What Really Happens Inside a Crematorium? Here's Karen at Rose Hill Cemetery in Linden, New Jersey.
4: The bodies arrive in caskets, occasionally made of wood, but more commonly cardboard. They remain in these containers during the entire stay. There are health reasons for this, such as protecting the technicians from infectious diseases. There are moral reasons. The family would want them in something, Kozlowski says. There are logistical reasons too. It would be extremely difficult to load a set of human remains without a casket. Just think of a body and trying to put it into a cremation unit. The caskets go into the crematorium's walk-in cooler, which is lined with shelves of them. One casket has a label on it from Delta Airlines that says Human Remains, and under it, Delta Cares. Bodies typically remain a day or two in the cooler, because most states require a 24-hour waiting period between when someone dies and cremation can occur. When something is so final, you want to take a pause. Five large cremation units occupy the floor, each covered in diamond-plated aluminum like you might see on a fire truck or a high-end toolbox. It's called a cremation unit, by the way, not an oven, and don't call the process incineration even though it is. There are certain words you're not supposed to say in a crematorium. With ovens, you think of Auschwitz, and that definitely has negative connotations, so people shy away from that nomenclature, says Brian Gamage. Director of Marketing at U.S. Cremation Equipment in Altamonte Springs, Florida. When a body is ready to be cremated, it is removed from cold storage and placed on a retractable table that looks like a gurney. It's then wheeled over to one of the machines. Cremation is the kind of business where an error would be catastrophic, unforgivable, and so Rosehill actually uses two forms of ID to make sure the family gets back the right remains. A copy of the receipt is attached to the outside of the cremation unit and a metal ID tag similar to a dog tag accompanies the deceased inside the unit. While the door can open about 30 to 35 inches wide, most operators open it only a foot or so, enough to accommodate the width of a body. Any more than that will let out too much heat, exposing the operator and the room to fiery temperatures. The body slides in pushed with a tool or by hand. There are rollers on the gurney and sometimes on the floor of the cremation unit so the casket can slide with ease. A cremation unit has two chambers. The primary chamber where the body goes and the secondary or after chamber where the gases generated are burned off. Cremated remains are typically bone fragments and casket ash. Remember, we're 75% water. The primary chamber has brick lined walls and a floor and roof made of high heat refractory concrete. A burner descends from the roof and heats the chamber to about 1200 degrees Fahrenheit, enough to break down a body into gas and bone fragments. The resulting gases and particulates travel into the after chamber a 30-foot maze designed to retain the gases for about two seconds. The after-chamber subjects the gases to a temperature of 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit to make sure the particles and odor are negligible before everything goes up the stack and out into the atmosphere. Gamage says you can think of the secondary chamber like a catalytic converter on an old car, which neutralizes the emissions of the exhaust system. Any solid will turn to gas if heated to the right point. That's essentially what happens to the body when the tissue is heated to the point where it's combustible and turns to gas, Gammage says. But just like in any combustion device, whether it's a car or a backyard grill, when you burn something, there's going to be emissions generated. The key is to design equipment that consumes most of the emissions so that they fall within the state environmental regulations. The particulates emitted must be less than 0.1 grains per dry standard cubic foot according to environmental agencies in most states. Problems arise when gases build up in the secondary chamber and begin to overflow. That can happen if the machine isn't designed properly or if the operator overloads the primary chamber, which can happen for surprising reasons. For example, putting an obese person in the unit at the wrong time of day. As macabre as it may sound, weight is something crematorium operators must worry about. The machine doesn't know the difference between a person who weighs 150 pounds and a person who weighs 400. It just does its job. The cremator's rule of thumb is that 100 pounds of human fat is the equivalent of 17 gallons of kerosene. If you have a body that weighs 400 pounds, at least 200 of it will be fat and that will burn rapidly. If you put that person into a very hot machine, as the cremation unit tends to be at the end of the day when it's been running for hours, the chamber may emit smoke and odor out of the stack. It's just too much gas for the machine to handle, Gamage says. Most experienced operators will do those larger cases as the first cremation of the day when the machine is colder. Inside the Rose Hill Crematorium, I'm staring at a computer monitor that reduces this ritual into raw data. The body inside is a male, it's the second case of the day, it's in a cardboard container weighing 201 to 350 pounds, and it has already been in there for an hour and 20 minutes. A diagram on the screen shows the machine's various chambers. Three little blue flames are illuminated under one of the chambers indicating that hearth air is now being blown into the chamber to help cool it down. It's currently between 910 and 1150 degrees inside, but moments earlier the temperature had been 1600 to 1800 degrees although it takes about an hour and a half to cremate a body though that varies depending on the person's weight and the type of casket they're in the time-consuming nature limits the number of bodies each can cremate during my visit all of Rose Hills machines were in various states of operation just to keep up with demand each needs to get five bodies done in eight hours Rose Hills cremation units run six days a week standing idle only on Sundays for religious reasons I ask Kozlovsky. no he says we just need a day off
0: and there you have it burning out what really happens inside a crematorium and thanks to Karen Chesler wait one more time is it Chesler or Chesler? Chesler right let me do that one more time Jesse.
4: For religious reasons I asked Kozlovsky. no he says we just need a day off
0: I just need the time Jesse I'm sorry oh, yeah.
4: each needs to get standing idle only on uh, Sunday for religion. So uh,
0: it's 10 right for this yeah. Yeah, alright so good I, so, that's what I thought All right, so I'll do about a minute okay go ahead
4: each needs to get five for religious reasons I ask Kozlovsky. no he says we just need a day off
0: and there you have it and we promise to bring you every kind of story here on our American stories and we do and thanks to Karen Chesler and this piece was originally in popular mechanics burning out what really happens inside a crematorium and by the way my mom was cremated she was a catholic and a lot of folks in the family were a little upset. And I think as these things happen, these conversations are happening. And a lot of folks were like, well, why are you doing this? Well, that's what my mom wanted. And it didn't matter what I wanted. It's what she wanted. And so we did it. And uh, she thought it was too expensive funerals. And she thought they were macabre. And that was her wish to me on, uh, on her final days. And she said, please don't do that to me. I don't want everybody sitting around looking at me in a, in a casket. And so it was really simple what I needed to do for her, and happy to do it, and her church allows it, and it's a cultural thing, and it's a personal choice, and we just love the story. Uh, It's fascinating look at how Americans live and how we die. Karen Chesler's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about movies on this show. And in this next story, you're about to hear from two guys who loved a movie so much when they were kids that they recreated the movie in their own backyard
5: and on an epic level. Here's Jesse with a story. It all started in 1981 with Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first of the Indiana Jones series starring Harrison Ford. It was that year's top-grossing film and one of the biggest box office earners of all time with upwards of $390 million in sales. But for whatever reason, the very following year, the small town of Ocean Springs, Mississippi, 11-year-old Chris Stromopoulos and 12-year-old Eric Zala set out to recreate Raiders of the Lost Ark on video, scene for scene, every shot, every line of dialogue, the entire film, using the original screenplay and score by John Williams. These kids are nuts. Not only did they pull it off, they pretty much nailed it. Shooting for this epic fan film began in 1982 and continued over the next seven summers on a shoestring budget of $5,000. It's quite possibly one of the best fan films ever made. They have screenings for this thing all over the world, and everybody in Hollywood knows about it. Now, the idea to remake the film scene by scene was hatched by then-11-year-old Chris Dramopoulos, but it was 12-year-old Eric Zala who had all of the experience.
6: Yeah, I did a class film in sixth grade, which Chris saw. We rode on the bus to elementary school together, and he, as a result, mistakenly thought I knew something about film. So when he got this wacky idea to remake Raiders Lost Ark shot for shot, um, that and the fact that I borrowed his Raiders Lost Ark comic book on the bus... Is what led him to give me a call and say, hey, I'm remaking Raiders of the Lost Ark, do you want to help? And I thought all the sets were built, everyone was cast, I just sort of walked on and helped. Little did I know the only thing that Chris had done at that point was buy the published screenplay, and as any good producer will do, cast himself as Indiana Jones.
5: So where did Chris get the idea to remake what was then a major blockbuster release in the early 80s? He says it was all just about kids having fun.
7: The whole sort of originating idea was really born out of more of a role-playing thing. It was a, it was a fantasy. It was, yeah, a creative project ensued, and, and, a, and a lifelong collaboration ensued. But I don't think it was ever like I don't ever think it entered our minds. You know, uh, like we sat down and, and thought, okay, well, we're about to put a, a whole you know, the next seven years of our lives into a creative project. What else do you want to work on? You know, what other, what other things that it's like this is what we're doing, and we're kind of going for it and and we had no, long, uh, no idea how long it was going to take us. Mm. So we sort of dove in and did it. So I don't, I don't know if we had that spectrum of creative thinking yet. I think it was just like, hey, this is it. This is what we're doing. Mm. Wouldn't it be exciting if, and we just sort of went after it with that childlike energy.
5: How did these kids in southern Mississippi back in the early 80s pull it off? Eric explains that it wasn't really easy
6: as a uh, 11 and 12 year old respectively growing up in Mississippi in the, in the uh, 80s pre-internet you know how do you remake a 26 million dollar movie on your allowance you know we knew nothing about it and, and for the first year so we kind of figuratively speaking groped around in the darkness as far as figuring out how you do that you know I wrote a 600 page shot list and then it got to the end and realized it was utterly worthless you know close- up and he walks into room. I mean, what are you going to do with that? And, and then figured out, okay, no, storyboards. That's how the professionals do it. Yeah, yeah. And it was sort of by osmosis, uh, filmmaking on the
5: fly. Now, filmmaking on the fly can sometimes get a little dangerous, especially when kids are in charge. One day, there was a fire on the set.
6: Most of the interiors we shot in my mom's basement, which had this big rambling basement, multiple rooms. So uh, we'd we'd only shoot in the summertime. Um, you know, it was like summer camp. You know, we'd, we'd do production, pre-production during the school year, but during the summer, that was our time. So, uh, think 120% humidity, (laughs) typical Mississippi summer day, um, start early and, um, and, uh, saunter down to the basement where, you know, it's made up like a Nepalese saloon with my dad's old wine bottles lining the, uh, lining the, uh, the shelves and and Jason, our cameraman is wiring up squibs to go off in the wall, Um, And, uh, we have, uh, you know, the, the Nepalese saloon nearly burns down and, um, our moms had shut us down the previous summer because, well, they spotted a shot with me with my back on fire and for some reason had a problem with this. Um, so, but they allowed us to continue with, uh, two words, adult chaperone. We found an adult even less responsible than we were. And so, um... He helped us uh, guide us to when you know there wasn't a fire in certain edges of the frame you know more more gasoline over there it's a wonder we didn't burn the house down don't try this at home kids
5: when making a film be it in hollywood or mississippi there are several stages of production there's pre-production shooting and post-production here again is eric on the pre-production efforts to build this monumental tribute film
6: first summer was entirely nothing but pre-production, drawing storyboards, scouting locations, casting, costumes, props. Year two, we finally shot, kept none of it, because again, we didn't know anything about filmmaking. Um, So there's very few shots that that we actually kept from that first year, but there are certain scenes that we just would shoot over and over and over again. Through uh, trial and error, we slowly picked up things about uh, learning about composition, lighting, blocking acting and bit by bit we got better and only when we were satisfied with uh the quality of a shot and of a scene would we move on to the next
5: now these kids are obviously determined to get the film made but there was another major hurdle that they would have to overcome back in the early 80s and that was just simply having access to the film that they were trying to recreate
7: we only actually saw the movie a few times you know uh uh, and worked pretty much from memory for the first handful of years until the film actually came out on Laserdisc in 84 and so we cobbled together absolutely everything that we could in terms of you know Raiders paraphernalia you know um, storybooks and magazines and and bubblegum cards and and all that stuff the comic book and the screenplay and and to the best of our memory sat down and and Eric you know chiseled out well over 600 individual storyboards that we then used as a blueprint but we you know we went back to the theater as much as we could but um you know for those of us who kind of remember the 80s there were there video stores were really in their infancy that you couldn't really go down and rent whatever you wanted you know um there was an availability issue you know and and it was a movie when they kind of re-released things so when the movie was re-released in the theater we went back and watched it you know again as much as our you know allowance would allow.
5: So the boys ended up finishing their scene-by-scene remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark with their big premiere at an auditorium of the local Coca-Cola bottling plant in Gulfport, Mississippi on August 12th, 1989.
7: Chris Strompolis, Eric Zela, and Jason Lamb have just finished an eight-year recreation. The trio premiered their version of Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I hope to major in film and television. It's the hardest thing I've ever done so far. We've been following this story off and on for the past three years. Let's get you up to speed by turning back the hands of time. Action sequence, take one.
5: It was shot out of sequence, so due to its long filming period, many actors randomly appear at different ages throughout the course of the film. They completed every scene in the film except for one that was too complicated and expensive for the kids to convincingly pull off. It's the scene from Raiders where Indiana Jones is in a fistfight with a big, bald Nazi next to an airplane with rotating propellers. At the last moment when Indy is getting his ass kicked, the Nazi gets hit by the plane's propeller and is shredded into a million bloody pieces that splatter all over the side of the airplane. But it's a pretty good effort considering it's the only scene the kids couldn't match. After setting Mom's basement on fire, it was probably a good idea to nix the death by propeller scene. The boys went their separate ways, going off to college, and the film was largely forgotten until 2003, when a film producer got his hands on the copy of the remake. Here's Chris on the film Getting Discovered all those years later.
7: I didn't even tell my wife I was an Indiana Jones fan, so she had no idea that I had even done this Raiders thing. And so when it got discovered in 2003 and, like, exploded, you know, and got us into Vanity Fair, and we were all of a sudden touring around the United States and going to Germany and Australia and, you know... My wife was like, um, so what's this Raiders thing, you know? I mean, can you, like, let me see it? You know, I'm like, eh, it's like this thing that I did. And, you know, I still had that, like, that reaction, you know? And she's like, this is cool, this is great. So this little
5: remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, born out of the sweltering summer heat of the Mississippi swamp country by a couple of kids with nothing better to do, suddenly had the attention of Hollywood.
6: Each of us um, received... A very kind letter from Mr. Spielberg thanking us for our very loving and detailed tribute. And uh, my wife actually, you know, photographed me at various stages of opening the letter and just sort of like gazing down on you know, stationary Steven Spielberg and, you know, his signature and, you know, this my boyhood hero who I spent my entire childhood emulating his his work. Um, uh, wow I can't get any better than this, but I was wrong. Um, you know, jump forward a year and we've been screening and written up in Vanity Fair and uh, we're in Los Angeles doing the Today Show and uh, the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn and we get a call from our agent. We have an agent now. Um, Spielberg wants to meet you in his office tomorrow at noon. God, (laughs) I was doing okay handling all this up to this point, but now I feel kind of sick. In the year
5: 2014, Chris and Eric raised enough money to go back and film that scene that they couldn't quite pull off as 12-year-olds thus completing the childhood project that started back in 1982. Be sure to check out the documentary about this charming little story online. Show it to your kids. It's called Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories.
0: This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And always, it's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And Job Creators is hard at work trying to promote policies that help and aid Main Street businesses across this country. Big businesses are well represented in Washington, D.C., and often they're trying to thwart the efforts of small ones. And big versus small is a big theme on this show as his up versus down, and always we're fighting for the little guy and for those small business owners across this country on Main Streets trying to turn their little businesses into bigger ones. And today, our own Alex Cortes brings us the story of someone that you likely know, my pillow founder Mike Lindell, but you likely don't know his full and remarkable story.
8: People always say, how ironic, you were a cocaine addict and you invented something to sleep. In 2008, um, my dealers, they did an intervention on me. I get downtown Minneapolis and all three of them are in the room. I go, what are you guys doing here now? Now I'm in the worst part of Minneapolis in in the one guy's apartment, Joe's second apartment. I said, you guys know each other? I'm up for 14 days or, you know, they said it was 19, it's 14. And uh, the one guy says, he goes, he goes, what am I here for? And he goes, he goes, well, Mike's been up 19 days and we're shutting him off. And, and uh, I said, I've only been up 14. And he says, you've been with us the whole time. You know, they all, they all you know, knew I hadn't slept. And the one guy leaves, he says, he ain't getting nothing from any of my people or me. And he was just disgusted and left. And before he left though, he goes, you made a promise to us. Because all the time when I'd be doing drugs and stuff, I would always promise him this is a platform that's going to help. When I quit, I'm going to come back and and help everyone you know, get out of this horrific addiction and everything. There were many times I was in crack houses or bars, whatever, and I would talk about Revelation, which I read about when I was ever in jail. You know, every time I was in jail I'd read the Bible. about the only time I would, you know. So I'm telling these guys well, they would quit that day, the next day, like 28 people quit all through my life. I'm going, well, what did I say? And they go, I don't know, but it sure made sense Well, normally you would think it's a hypocrite yeah, this is really bad, give me another line, you know, and and they would they would listen, but all that time, it was me telling them, trying to convince myself, you know, trying to convince myself whether it would be Jesus or whether it would be to get off the drugs. It was me trying to convince myself. So anyway, these guys are in the middle of this intervention thing, and the one guy kicks the other guy Joe out of his own apartment, and he sits there in a the chair next to me. He says, "How much you have left?" And I had I don't know enough to probably uh, last an hour or so. And he sits there and and now I I run out and I'm scraping the pipe. Anybody that's on crack out there, you're scraping the residue out of the pipe and re-smoking it and trying to, then you're looking on the ground all over the carpet trying to find pieces you may have dropped over the last few days and it's horrific. And then uh, anyway, I look over and he's asleep. So I head on down to the streets. The only white guy down there, they're going, you ain't getting nothing from me. You're not getting nothing from me. And I mean, all these things they're saying, I'm going, how do they know it's me? And know, uh, my buddy, Joe, that he just, he goes, yeah, he goes, Mike didn't realize we told him, you know, if a, if a crazy white guy comes down with a mustache, you know, <laughs> so Joe just told this story the other day, and he, cause he works for, now he's a Christian, he works for my company, and he, so anyway, I get back to the room, and I defeated, and I get in there, and and uh, he's sitting in the chair, and he says, uh, how'd that work out for you? And I said, I was so mad, and I said, you know, it was like 2.30 in the morning, 3 in the morning, and he goes he goes give me your phone he says you're going to take you're going to take this picture you told us you're going to write a book you're going to need this for your book it's like think of someone up 14 days in a mugshot or whatever but time's that by 5 you know
9: mike believes that his drug addiction was all
8: because of his parents divorce 100% 100% everything in childhood everything in childhood trauma Everything affects, it manifests to addictions, manifests to personality disorders, a divorce, but a divorce, a fatherlessness, it affects everybody. This was not known back then, I mean, it was very rare, you know, my mom and dad divorced when I was seven. I was nine days into second grade, brought to a new school. Um, I was the oldest child, so I was babysitting at seven. It was, uh to fit into the new school. I, you know, I did a lot of crazy things to you know, climbing out a moving bus window to show off. And uh, I worked at a drive-in the- movie theater and the drive-in movie theater was voted the best job to have in the 1970s. One time I remember climbing up the back of the screen and on these little rungs and me and my buddy that worked there were going to moon the crowd. And we stand up there. We're 160 feet off the ground and I'm afraid of heights. So we hang onto the screen and now... I couldn't get back up and I'm gonna fall to my death and my and my clothes fall off, my pants fall off. So he's helping me trying to get back up and he gets me back up. And I just petrified climbing back down. Of course, the police were waiting at the bottom and they're going, and this is the 1970s, they're going, he goes, uh, my manager's there, he goes, these guys work here. He goes, oh, this, you know, and the guy, they go, you get back out there. Don't do that again and get your clothes. I mean, that was it. But you look back now, I'm going, you know, all those people watching, you go, is that part of the movie? You know, and uh, I did a lot of different things like that. I know a lot of it was uh, was out of boredom, you know, um, just things to do. I wanted, you know, just excitement. Even though I even though I get myself into trouble, it was exciting. and It was challenging getting out of trouble, you know. <laughs>
9: Mike went on to college, although he didn't know why.
8: I didn't know what I wanted to be. I talked about maybe being a lawyer, you know, and all these different things, but I didn't know what I wanted to be, and it was like that was the thing to do, go to college, and I had... I I didn't go to class. I went to class twice. I was working two jobs, my roommate's going, "Uh, what are you even here for? And I would just go take the test and still get C's at not even doing anything. And that was the year of the uh, Iranian uh, crisis, the hostage crisis. And as soon as that happened, I used it as an excuse, I'm out of here, the you know, world's coming to an end or whatever. I'm, I'm gonna go have fun while gone, you know. I just thought it was a waste of time. I mean, I'm going, it's a repeat of high school, these things, and my whole thought process, why do you have to go four years of this um, general college and then to be a, a doctor or a lawyer, or whatever you wanna be, and that bothered me. I'm not gonna sit here and waste my time, that's the way I thought
9: so he put his attention elsewhere
8: working at the grocery store i got heavy into illegal sports betting and i uh, was betting with some very bad people on sports and i ended up owing them a lot of money and they came to my trailer and left a note he said if you don't pay by tonight things are going to get very physical that night i went to work at the grocery store and i told my manager i said lenny i said if if anybody comes through the door here and looks like they might be in the mafia or whatever, it looks like he's, I say, so we used to say, Mike, telephone line three. We only had two telephone lines. I wasn't even there three minutes. And I said, I hear, Mike, telephone line three. And out the back door I went, and I went and got their money the next morning and paid them. Little things like that, you know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and more on this remarkable story, Mike Lindell's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We return to our American Dreamers series, this time Mike Lindell. And we return, at this point, he's dropped out of college, he's working at a grocery store, and for the owner's son, who was his manager.
8: I had been uh, fired, it was a union, I'd been fired I don't know how many times the union got my job back, or, or his dad did. And uh, it would always be over stuff that uh, I didn't like his rules. And he goes, if you don't like it, you know, get your own company someday and, and make your own rules. And there were so many things I didn't like as an employee back then. And I've, I've changed a lot of that now to my own company where to make things better. And he he said that the, final, the thing he did that where he finally fired me, I was, I was on five different schedules. And one of them I knew I was probably on, but I didn't want to look at it because I was seeing my cousin that I hadn't seen in years. <laughs> and uh anyway the next day i come in and he's working to me. he says you've been suspended indefinitely and i said i don't what does that mean i i like you like you know i didn't realize that you're done you know i didn't know what the words meant and uh so i said yeah we'll see about this so i went to his dad and he said he looked at me he says mike i'm not i'm not getting behind you this time he says you're destined for bigger things he says you're gonna look back someday and see this was meant to be and he says, you can't be a lifer here even though, and, and they had both told me I'm one of their best employees, but I just had problems. And I uh, never forgot them words. I looked back and it wasn't too long looking back going, well, you know, wow, that had to happen. Or I might still have been there for years later, you know.
9: But it would take more than one incident to really kick in Mike living a real life.
8: My fifth year reunion with my class. Everyone's now is out of the college. They get these amazing jobs. They've started families or they've kept with the same company since high school. In my mind they were way ahead of me. And it was very it was bothering me inside and then it was just a Going wow, everybody's ahead of me, and I'm doing stuff to show off. And I you know, I got into you know I was a card counter. Then I took a card counting class, professional card counting, but I hadn't even started it yet or whatever. I just it at the class. So I'm I'm bragging it at the reunion about skydiving with a parachute not opening and or my car accidents and my you know card counter things that they've never seen or the mafia coming after me. You know, so I'm blowing their minds, and so we don't get on the topic of uh, yeah, how you doing for work? How you doing? Uh, you know, what are you doing, Mike? How many kids you got? How many, you how's your family? You know, I'm just completely putting up this wall, you know, for these other things. And so they're all thinking I'm nuts, basically. But it was a very, it was, that starting there it was a very much a driver. And it was like, a, there was a lot of, now it's started to be shame. You know, I'm going, you know, this is, this is not who I can be. And then I prayed, I said, you know, God, all I want is to meet the right woman and have, you know, kids and, and, uh, you know, be the the white picket fence, so to speak. And then God brought that all to me and handed it to me on a silver platter.
9: Until Mike jeopardized his answered prayer.
8: By then I was a very functioning cocaine addict too. I look back and I'm going, oh, it was perfect. Well, no, there was a lot of dysfunction. Even though it's hard to, for the addiction to to hide it all the time. The kids didn't even know then. That's how good I was. I mean, it was a lot of work hiding the the cocaine and then the and then crack. The kids didn't know, okay. Even like neighbors, let's give our kids or you know, send our kids over there because we were the fun, you know. This is back in the, you know, when they were younger and was with cocaine. But then when the crack came on, that took us down fast. When the cocaine turned into crack, and and the kids, my daughter at that time, and we, we got right when it all kind of blew up. She says we're very dysfunctional family. I go, I don't know what that means, but don't ever say that again. We're not dysfunctional. That's a swear word. What do you mean? What? It sounded just horrible. I didn't know what it really, really meant, you know. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that don't sound great. But I lost it all. You know, eventually lost it all.
9: And in the midst of a lot of this dysfunction, Mike was already running
8: my pillow. I tried every pill. Even when I was 16 years old, I bought one of my first paychecks, went to buy a pillow at that grocery store I worked at.
9: This teenager spent $70 on a pillow. That would be $287 in
8: today's money for a pillow. So I spent the most expensive pillow thinking it would be the best. It was a down pillow and it was the worst because they you know, I know now they just sell us air. I mean I mean how can that be? It feels good, down it goes, but I couldn't return it. That I do remember. They would not let me return that pillow. But then throughout my life I'm trying different pillows and I always had problems with sleep and wake up in the morning with headache, neck ache, but mostly these sleep interruptions are not being able to get to sleep right away. So in, in two thousand four. I had a very clear dream of the name My Pillow, and I wrote My Pillow all over the house and, and connecting the Y and the P and and you know these logos. And I'm going, that sounds really corny, you know. Um, but I go, well, where's My Pillow? You know, I mean, if you, it's hard for you to think back now because there's my everything, and it was because of My Pillow got big, everybody took up the mys, But my daughter came upstairs and there was, she looked and there were pieces of paper written all over it and. Lizzie says uh, she gets a glass of water. she, I don't know. She's eleven years old, maybe. And she said, "What are you doing, Dad?" And I go, "I go. I'm going to invent this pillow." And, I, and now I realize I hadn't even got the, you know, what, what it's going to be made of or what it's going to do. It's going to be the best thing ever. I've seen it, and and this is going to be called my pillow. And she looks at all these pieces of paper. She goes, "That's really random, Dad." And she went back downstairs. Well, then the kids said to their mother at the time, when's dad gonna get over this pillow thing? And uh, he says, oh, it's just a phase. It'll be, it'll be over. And I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't doing anything. I'd sold my little bar and restaurant. So my total focus was on this pillow now. Well, then I still had to figure out the material. So we tried over 94 different kinds of foams and fills to put in there. My one son, Darren, and I, he was now managing 1,100 or 1,200 employees of the manufacturing. That's what he does now. But he's like 9 or 10 years old and every day he'd get home from school and we'd try different kinds of stuff on the deck and the foam would fly all over the neighborhood and we tried little machines to get to work. And finally we get it and it worked. Once we had the pillows all made, we had mortgaged our house, everything and we had no money left but we had like 300 pillows. And I went into the first pillow. I walked into a, it was a Bed bathroom Beyond, I'll just say the name. In Bloomington, Minnesota, I go in there, I said, I got the best pillow ever. I said, this pillow is gonna change, you know, change, you're gonna sell more of this than anything. It helps this, helps you sleep, blah, blah, blah. And where? where's your buyer? Who's your buyer? Where's the manager? And he looks at me, he goes, you need to leave. And I'm going, the guy just had all this passion, you know? And I'm going, what do you mean I need to leave? I said, I want to talk to your wife. And I learned right away. And I started calling on other stores and everybody. It was the same shutout. My brother-in-law's brother said, Mike, why don't you do a kiosk? And I said, what's that? How do you spell kiosk? And then we did this kiosk. And I had a little sign a stencil where I put on family-owned and operate. I colored in the, the stencil. And the other one I put, chiropractor recommended. And she goes, his then wife. We can't have this. She goes, someone can sue us. I said, I gave one to a chiropractor, our friend, you know, and he loves it, you know. But it was way far, you know, here's a mall, and here's this in a mall. It just was almost too corny, you know what I mean? Almost too real. But I did. we did sell about 80 pillows. And the one day, obviously, we lost, uh, I don't know, like $15,000 because it's very expensive to have a kiosk on November and December. And But one guy, he came up, and he said, hey, you have a, do you have a card? And I go, I don't have business cards. I, I go, oh, I'm all out. I sit here and I gave him my number. And in January of that year, now chaos was almost you know a complete failure, basically. I borrowed money from my ex-bookie to buy Christmas presents that year. And by the way, the reason he was my ex-bookie, he said, if you quit gambling, I'll borrow you money. I mean, that, I mean that's, uh, you know, he cared. <laughs> and, uh, so this guy called me in January and he says, are you the guy that invented this pillow? The one guy I gave my phone number to, and I go, yeah. And he goes, this pillow changed my life. He says, it is a miracle. And he was all about that. I'm going, okay. And, he, and I'm excited to hear, you know, not worrying about where I am at that this is. I'm going, I was just so happy for him that it helped him. And he goes, I run the Minneapolis Home and Garden Show. Would you like a spot in there? And I go, and, I, and I'm and i thinking to myself right away, well, the kiosk didn't work. And I'm going, I go, well, maybe there's more people or something, you know. And I'm going, sure. Well, I didn't have money, and of course, I had to borrow money to get into there but then um, i go into that home and garden show but what I did is I got behind that booth I could sell and once I got behind it was whew, it was like wow and as I'm seeing people they would literally come back the next day so many people after that first day going, this is a miracle and same thing the guy said now I'm feeding off this passion and I'm just it was like amazing where that I realized I could sell and I could sell and help people and I sold out that four days sold out I was and I'm going wow I can this is where I'm going to be I can support my family in spite of everybody turning me down so I started doing home shows and fairs and got in the Minnesota State Fair we blew it out of the park we're still there
9: and as they say the rest is history but that's a tad bit blasé for this story there were more trials to come,
0: and the story of Mike Lindell, an American dreamer's story, as good as any we've done. we till you hear the rest of the story here on our American stories. Turn to the life story of my pillow founder Mike Lindell
8: I had this mask on and probably from when th- when the divorce from childhood I always had to have that's when I got a hold of cocaine it was so easy I, everything I did I had to be on cocaine to be able to talk to people and be able to have my confidence because I have this unworthiness inside of me that a lot of people have from you know from different things that have happened it's an unworthiness and now when I quit all my drugs and everything, that's was it's been quite a journey to where now, I mean, if you'd have told me I would be speaking in front of people or doing a commercial, I would have said, there is no way. In fact, I did a little human interest story once at a local station. I was still on drugs at the time. It was 2005 or six. And this little public access station in Minneapolis, I came down there and she goes, uh, Um, Hey, this uh, post. he was going on, she says, you want to go on his show right now? I want you, I go, I'm not going on the show. And she goes, she goes, no, I want you just the way you are at the home shows. And I said, well, I'll come back in an hour because I want to go get my drugs, right? So, and she goes, no, go on right now. So she talks me into going on. Now, I was so petrified. Anybody that knew me said, you didn't have drugs, did you? And anybody that didn't know me said, what, is he on drugs? You know what I mean? Because I was so, like, I was all over the... I've never been so nervous. I just couldn't even talk. And I never forgot that. And I'm going, if you'd have told me then, oh, you you don't need all this, and you're going to be an amazing, you know, speaker and all this stuff. I'm going, okay, that ain't going to (laughs) happen.
9: And yet, there was one place in Mike's life where he didn't need the drugs. Where he was home
8: interesting with the home shows um, you know I I noticed one thing when I was behind that table and people came up they had a reason for me to talk to them now if I left behind the booth, I didn't have to have drugs that was the only it was like a phenomenon now if I went out to smoke cigarettes outside the door and there's three people there I wouldn't even go near them. I'd have to because I wouldn't want to talk to them. you follow me I wouldn't want to talk to him. So it would be when I was behind that, behind that table, talking about my pillow. I was in a, it was like a, you know, this amazing new thing where I could talk to people. And so I didn't need that. But obviously, if I had cocaine, it would be, it would be, you know, the same. But what I noticed, I could have the same passion with with the cocaine or without. Only in one spot, behind that booth. Once I left that booth. I mean, it's like walking into another world. I'd walk if I'm in, the, I'm, and I have to talk to you, and you're the next booth over, and we're going to talk about the weather. It's not happening. I'm clamming up. I'm avoiding. You. I'm going, hey, yeah, we'll talk to you later. I didn't know what to say. I was very socially stunted in that respect, where I probably have the social skills of a 12 year old. The
9: home shows were the one place in Mike's life that was certain. It was his world, his pillow. Not the uncertain world outside those doors where he was damaged by his parents, the drugs, and an unknown future. The shows were the place where he could feel that he
8: was a positive force in this world. For me, I didn't have money. It didn't matter if I had money. I, would, I had a skill. I could go out and get money. If I borrowed money, I would pay you back double because I couldn't, I couldn't accept anything from anybody. I have another wound where I don't accept. I'm a giver, but I can't accept, which I've worked on. You know, I can't accept. If we were going we to go to lunch, guess what? I'd have a hard time you buying me lunch. That's the way you know I am, and that's a wound. That's actually, it's not a healthy thing either. It's being able to accept is also uh, just as good as blessing someone but I couldn't accept, especially back then. If you and I were doing drugs, I'm not taking some of your drugs, you're taking mine, you know. But to be able to be in that pillow show and to just see people coming up, I just felt like God gave me the idea for the pillow in the first place. I'm going, wow. I wouldn't get depressed because of that. It was like a constant feed of people going, this is amazing. You know, I had this with my neck and this and I'm getting sleep now. I knew it was such a divine solution. I could have sat and just, help people forever and never got I wasn't thinking like okay I'm gonna make millions of dollars my thought was always I'm gonna help millions of people there's a difference
9: but to reach his fullest potential in helping people there was just one person that he had to help first himself it was March of 2008 when he was brought to that intervention by the three biggest drug dealers of Minneapolis of all people. That might have woken some people up, but not Mike yet. His Christian faith was always there, but it floated in and out of his heart. He grew up in a non-denominational Christian church and never had a real relationship with Christ.
8: An interesting thing happened a week after that um Little intervention. I'm sitting all by myself at this place I was living, and I get a phone call. Now, remember, I, we talked about that little public access station. That was on, and that lady was a nice Christian lady. She would air it just every now and then, at, you know. And I would get phone calls of people wanting to buy pillows. Then, you know, so it was helping me out. And and uh, well, that night it's about 9:30 at night, and the phone rings, and I answer, and and I'm up doing. you know, Of course, I'm still up for probably two, three days, and. She says, you know, I, I'm, are you the guy I've seen on Channel 6? And I uh, said, yeah. She says, well, she says, God, God, I prayed and God told me to call you and say what you're doing is so important to the kingdom. Can we pray about it? And I said, okay, so we're praying. About a half hour goes by and she goes, I say, you know, goodbye. And I still have her name, by the way, for this, you know, the proof that this happened. About another hour goes by and another lady calls up. And this never had happened, okay? I really got one call to buy a pillow. And she calls up, she says, are you the guy I seen on Channel 6 that invented this pillow? And I said, yeah. She goes, well, I haven't bought one, and, and, but she said, um, I was going to call him and see if it's okay to pray with you. She said, and what you're doing is so important to the to God. And I'm going, okay. And so we pray for about an hour. That was a long one. And we prayed, and I talked to her. I had nothing. You know, I'm doing lines of cocaine. I wanted someone to talk to anyway, you know? And, um, now three in the morning, this guy calls up same night and he calls up and he answers and he goes, I want to get you the guy on TV. And he was mad. And I go, yeah, he goes, I, he goes, let me get something clear here. I don't believe in God, but I keep getting this dream that I'm supposed to call you and tell you what you're doing is important to God. And he slams the phone down. Very upset. Now about seven in the morning, the phone rings and, um, And I get on there, I go, you don't want to buy a pillow, you want to pray. And she goes, well, how did you know? And I'm going, it seems to be the thing tonight, you know? And and, uh, she ended up buying a pillow, though, too. But but we, so we prayed. So that day, I'm going, wow, you know, and I knew that this platform, then my sister called me up a week later. She says, you got to quit standing in front of semis and think that God's going to pick someone else for this. He, He chose you for some, for a big calling. My sister is telling me this, and I'm going, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I heard that last week, you know, <laughs> and, she, and she goes, you have a calling, and this, and she said this window's gonna close, and God's gonna choose someone else in your and But then I'm kind of thinking, well, if I'm chosen for this, I can surely wait, you know. So I procrastinated through the year. And when, when we talk about bottom, for me, I wouldn't really have a money bottom, because I've survived, you know. Addicts are survivors. Any addicts that are out there, it, addictions are so, there's a lot of work. They're so hard to maintain them, to hide your addiction, to get enough to make money to get your drugs. I mean, there's just so, it's a lot of work. And most addicts are very smart. They're gonna get what they want.
0: And when we come back, we're gonna hear the rest of this remarkable story. And I just love the line that I, I never got into this thing to make millions out of it, Mike Lindell said. I thought. I'm going to help millions of people. And that's a big difference, he said. And it is. And, of course, we've heard that from so many of our American Dreamers. And that's where money comes from in this great country. When you help other people, they pay you for the service voluntarily. And then, of course, the faith element of this story is equally impressive, maybe even more. And you're going to hear the rest of this story, and it just keeps getting better, folks. Our American Dreamers segment. Mike Lindell's story. My Pillow's story. Now let's return to the final portion of our American Dreamer series, Mike Lendell's story, the founder of MyPillow.
8: We get to December of 2008, and an interesting thing happened. My friend that had quit for three years, his name is Dick, and he was the first guy I ever did cocaine with in 1984, but he had been free of everything and had found Jesus for three years, and I hadn't seen him for a year. He used to be one of my dealers, all right? And now he's the only guy on the planet. You know, I've been to treatment centers and stuff through my life for different things, gambling, uh, drugs, alcohol, to get my license back. And he's the only one that could have came there where I could ask him questions where I would respect the answer because he's been there. Well, anyway, here comes Dick, and he walks in the door. He says, I said, Dick, what are you doing here? He says, God sent me out here. He says, what's going on? And I'm going well. As long as you're here, I got a few questions for you. One of the first things I asked him is, "Is it boring?" And that was a big question to addicts because a lot of addicts think with addictions, it's it's because you're bored. It's not. You're hiding pain. You're hiding pain, and you're doing it. To, you know, you're all that whatever you're doing on that for the high. It's just masking the pain. But so I was very concerned about, "Is it boring?" Then he left. That was in December of 08. Now. On January 16, 2009, I sat there and I'm going, okay, it was just like they used to have black and white TVs. When you turned them off, there'd be that little tiny dot and you turned it back on before that dot went out, right? And and in my mind, I just knew that if I waited one more day, I, someone else would be chosen. And at the same time, I thought, you know what? This is going to help so many people because this is going to be, God's going to show the best Come back or the best with God all things are possible ever. This story, this story is going to be an amazing story. I actually thought that the day I quit. And so I prayed, I said, God, I want to wake up in the morning and free me from all these addictions. I don't ever want to feel them that, you know, the desire. Free me from the desire. And uh, I said, then I'm all yours, I'll do this platform. That was my thing. So I'll do this, you know, whatever you want me to do. So I wake up in the morning and it's gone. It was a peace. It was like, wow. I didn't have any money. I told my friends and family, "Let's all pool our money and do this infomercial dream I had. If nobody's going to take my pillow, let's bring it right to the people." And I didn't know that infomercials don't work. It's just to get in box stores. You don't make money on the front end, but I—nobody told me that. It's like an old Gilligan's Island episode when Gilligan's up flying and the skipper goes. Gilligan, get down here, you can't fly. And Gilligan says, I can't, and he crashed to the ground. He was flying just fine until somebody told him he couldn't do it. Well, nobody told me I couldn't make this infomercial and couldn't make it, you know, I'm amazing in my head. I'm going this is gonna be the biggest ever I'm telling my friends and family.
9: Mike says that in a dream there were specific numbers about this hypothetical infomercial success that came
8: to him. I'm going to go to a million dollars a week or two million overnight.
9: A wild success for something that pretty much was at nothing. But here we go, and someone introduced him to
8: a so-called expert. I said, I have this dream in this infomercial with just a real audience. And I didn't want to be in, I didn't want to be in TV. I said, maybe somebody do it like we do at home shows, you know, just make it real. And she goes, no, you need an actor. And she says, then they wrote a script. The phones are lighting up like Christmas trees. I wanted to throw up. I said, this is not what I want. And she goes, I'm a professional and all this. But now the money kept going down. Almost all the money we had got from my friends and family that everyone put their life and just believe in me was almost, we were running out. We didn't even have anything. So divine appointment, I met this other guy. So he's going to do this infomercial. Well, it turned out I was going to do it because he had seen so much passion. This guy says, you need to do it. Then all of a sudden they had wrote this script, and I went to read it. They had this big professional guy had come in, and he's sitting there, and he's listening to me read off this script, and then her, and he goes, this is the worst disaster ever. This guy is terrible, okay, being me, you know. This is, it's, they didn't know what to do, so they, they decided they would go with no teleprompter.
9: That Mike would try ad-libbing the whole infomercial.
8: It will also become a hard surface, and it's no good.
2: What about this one?
8: This one here is Ruined America. Oh my um, so we go in there to film it, and I was so scared. But once again, I got behind that counter, and it was like a shield between me and the audience where i come my comfort zone and i just went naturally and whatever now on october 7 2011 i'm living in my sister's basement and and this aired at three in the morning and all of a sudden this half-hour infomercial comes on and i'm going wow i'm watching myself you know usually i would get so uncomfortable but i'm going i hadn't seen it yet i had not seen it i had not i couldn't watch it so this is the first time i watched it And it was surreal. And it wasn't like, ooh, I'm on TV. It was like, wow, this is like divine. Wherever you set that, you get exactly what you need for your individual neck support, okay? You can turn this any way you want. You can make little balloon animals out if you want. Okay, it's gonna hold. It takes six pounds of pressure to hold that. It was just all natural that it was like, it was real. It was what I wanted. I didn't want it to be a cookie cutter you know, infomercial, and we exploded. We went from five employees to 540 40 days. We were hiring people as fast as we could. We are working out of a little schoolhouse. We made our own call center, because I, I had trained a call center in Connecticut. I had trained them, because I take customer service so seriously. I called on the second day. I said, yeah, what's in that pill? The guy goes, I don't know, Google it. I fired him on the spot. I was so upset, and And we made our own call center in a little schoolhouse. We put everybody, my friends, everybody came in and we took phones through the night. And I look back now and I say, everybody got their pillows in time for Christmas. I mean, we we were making them, hiring, teaching them how to sew. Can you sew? Yeah, here. They go, Mike, you need to be CEO. I go, that sounds horrible. Don't they just take money? And And then I go, we need an HR department. I go, that really sounds bad. I mean, all these things. I just wanted to make pillows, you know? And we took in millions of dollars over the next six months
9: but the experts continued to tell him that his way was
8: stupid they're going did you make this ad this is this is terrible did you write this yourself we can do so much better blah 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 and uh, now it's the number one ad in history I look it up I'll put it up against any ad ever Mike's ad-libbed
9: infomercials that the American people have responded to because he's genuine and real are now selling over 75,000 MyPillow
8: products a day. And people said, oh, Mike, you can't make a pillow here in the United States. You've got to make it overseas. I said, no, you're never going to get a patent on a pillow. And all these naysayers, and I fought every single thing. It was a constant fight. And the infomercial finally fatigued. And when it did fatigue in the summer of 14, I thought, you know, it's over. I mean, it was just scary. We were, we were within two days of going under. Uh, during that time and I had fell away from God I didn't uh, I mean I was like when I took in all that money I'm going wow this is you know I kind of kind of forgot about the platform that he had given me and everything started to just dry up okay and in the summer of 14 I met Kendra and I noticed something with her that she had that I didn't have it was it was like this relationship with Jesus and I wanted that. I really wanted that relationship or whatever she had. And on February 18th, 2017 is when Jesus showed up and I had this personal relationship now. You going, wow, now I have what Kendra has. Now I'm doing speaking all over the country. Where I have the same passion for the pillow as now I have for Jesus. And that's powerful.
9: Why did the relationship finally come on this particular day
8: operation restored warrior is actually for veterans you go there it's a five day thing where you're uh, you give your life to jesus and you know i was invited like you know i'm not a veteran and i'm going why but they all prayed and we're going to invite we want you know god told them that we want mike lindell to come to this And here I'm there, I'm going, I'm not, what am I doing here with these veterans? You know, these guys have stories that are 10 times worse than any story I have or any wounds. The wounds I heard there in their heart, and Jesus showed up. I mean, I can't even tell you, it was the most divine. I'm walking out of there, I'm going, wow, this is what I was missing. This personal relationship where you're walking with him instead of just, you know, okay, I'm gonna go to church and believe in God and, you know, before all those times now I look back all these chapters and all these things of my life for me it took all these things because i'm going this doesn't happen unless it's of god
9: that the troubled son of divorced parents the crack addict the twice divorced father the near bankruptcies all of these trials and tribulations must have happened for a reason That the odds of someone with this story selling 75,000 pillow products a day, meeting with the President of the United States in the White House, and sharing his Christian faith before a crowd of over 60,000 in an NFL stadium after a life of fearing public speaking, this could have only happened for one reason—
8: and by one man. God bless me with this company. That ain't Mike Lindell.
0: And what a great story about entrepreneurship and faith molded into one. Our American Dreamers series as always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. We've done dozens of these American Dreamers series. This may be one of the best. Mike Lindell's story, my pillow story,